Section 8, comprised of chapters 22, 23, and 24 of Life and Adventures of Frank and Jesse James by J.A. Dacus. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by P.J. Landau. Chapter 22, A Railway Train Robbed in Iowa, A Night Vigil, On the Chicago, Rock Island, and Pacific Railway Line, A Locomotive Ditched and a Fireman Killed, a successful raid. Robin Hood and his merry men of Sherwood Forest fame have left a name indelibly written on the pages of history. In the days of our youth we have heard or read about Claude Duval and Jack Shepard and their wonderful exploits in old England. And we have a faint recollection of one John A. Morrell, who obtained great distinction as an outlaw in the southern section of our own country. The Harps, who infested the passes of the mountains of East Tennessee, were celebrated robbers in their days. And that shrewd mongrel of the commingled blood of Old Castile and a red daughter of the western wilds, Agatoni, the terror of the Rio Grande border, made no little noise in his day as a daring brigand. But neither these nor the celebrated Fra Diablo were like the brigands we're speaking about. William de la Marck, the outlawed nobleman of the Low Countries, and known in history as the wild boar of Ardennes, plundered by the wholesale. There was nothing little or mean in his methods. He would scorn to pounce upon a lonely traveler and demand his purse. He sacked villages and plundered caravans. In this our Missouri outlaws resemble the wild boar of Ardennes. They do not wait in gloomy places to catch a single wayfarer. They do not meet a weary traveler on the highway and cry out to him, your money or your life. They would despise such petty meanness. After St. Genevieve, they rested. But their season of repose was not long. A new campaign was planned. Hitherto, they had depredated on the banks. But they were about to commence another line of business. The whole question was, no doubt, discussed with profound interest in their secret conclave. Such a thing as plundering a railway train was something new. The public mind had not become accustomed to read accounts of the arrest of railway trains and the robbery of the passengers by a band of armed robbers. The Missouri bandits thought to create a sensation. In the early part of July 1873, Frank James, Cole Younger, Robert Moore, a desperado from the Indian Territory, Jesse James, and Jim Younger, held a conference in Jackson County, Missouri, when a scheme was broached to overhaul and rob a railway train. The first suggestion was to rob a train on the Hannibal and St. Joe Railway, or some other road in the state of Missouri. But that was rejected after due deliberation. The plan of going into Iowa was suggested and met with favor. The plans were matured before the gang separated. About the 14th of the month, the robbers met at the house of a friend in Clay County, and the final arrangements were made. A place of rendezvous was appointed, and the gang then separated into couples. As usual, Frank and Jesse James took the same route. Cole Younger and Bob Moore another, and Jim Younger and a Texas desperado who went by the name of Comanche Tony followed another route. The robbers leisurely pursued their journey, and on the 20th of July they were near the line of the Chicago, Rock Island, and Pacific Railway, 
about 14 miles east of the city of Council Bluffs. At the appointed place of rendezvous, they all meet after dark on the night of the 20th. During that day, Jesse James and Cole Younger made a reconnaissance and selected the exact spot to carry out the enterprise in which they were engaged. It was agreed that they would throw the morning train bound east from Council Bluffs, as it was supposed to carry a large amount of specie en route east from the Pacific Slope. The robbers didn't care much for silver, but they were willing to accept all the gold bricks that might fall into their hands. The place selected was about three miles from the rendezvous, in the edge of a belt of timber, and where the roadbed was in an excavation about four feet deep. The train was due at that point about three o'clock in the morning. With deliberate purpose, the robbers took their station in the underbrush near the track. Several cross ties were placed in a position to be immediately utilized when the time came. Three or four rails were loosened from the ties, and in silence the bandits waited for the approach of the train. In due time, the train was described by the watcher at the upper end of the curve. The road was very straight for a long distance to the west of the place selected. At that point, there is a rather sharp curve, and an obstruction placed on the track could not be seen by the engineer until he was within 60 yards of it. As soon as the train was seen coming down the long straight track, the robbers suddenly awoke into life and activity. The loosened rails were thrown apart, and half a dozen cross ties were thrown across the tracks just above. The engineer saw the danger when too late. He reversed his engine, but the momentum was too great. The ponderous locomotive plunged on, struck the obstruction, and careened on the sides of the track. The shock was terrific. The engineer was killed and the fireman seriously injured, but the train stood still. The aroused passengers had no time to inquire the cause of the sudden stoppage. They knew full soon. The presence of armed men, strange, weird, desperate, appearing on the platforms of the coaches, informed them concerning the situation. The train passed into the hands of bandits. The passengers were ordered in a peremptory manner to keep still. The command was accompanied by dreadful threats of instant annihilation on the least evidence of disobedience. Surprised and unnerved by the suddenness of the attack, the passengers obeyed. Then three of the band proceeded through the train and commanded the passengers to surrender up their money and jewelry. They made a searching examination of each person in the cars. It is understood that several thousand dollars were obtained in this way. The express and mail car were searched and rifled. The spoils of the examination were put into a sack, and the robbers sought their horses and mounting, speedily galloped away. Of course, the intelligence of such an occurrence was telegraphed far and wide. A most determined pursuit of the robbers was at once organized and set on foot. The sheriff of the county in which the robbery was committed summoned a large posse of men and started in pursuit. His theory was that they were Missouri outlaws. He got on the trail of the robbers and tracked them through western Missouri as far as St. Clair County. Here he lost their trail, and efforts to find the outlaws proved unavailing. The sheriff finally gave up the chase and returned home. It is proper to add that friends of Cole Younger denied that he could possibly have had anything to do with this robbery. They assert that he was at the Monagaw Hotel, St. Clair, on Sunday morning, the 20th of July, 
and therefore could not have been in Iowa the next morning. But there is no doubt that the Youngers, at least Bob and Jim, were present with the Jameses on that occasion. At any rate, the bandits escaped with their booty. Chapter 23. The Gaines Place Stage Robbery. How the invalids en route to Hot Springs were plundered on the Malvern Road. Scenes and incidents of the robbery. Grim jokes at the expense of the passengers. Quote, their cruel bandits you would climb, the rungs of the world, O curse sublime, with tears and laughters for all time. End quote. They used to say that the James boys and the younger brothers might kill men who attempted to impose upon them, but they would not rob or steal. Those who rob men of life must be the greatest criminals, and the lesser crimes are included in the greater. The career that they had chosen required the service which money alone can render. These men had need for money, which their legitimate resources were inadequate to supply. Those who have taken many lives will not hesitate long to take a few dollars when their necessities require it. Such are the laws which govern human actions. Long before many of the very respectable citizens of Clay, Clinton, and Jackson counties believed it, the sons of the excellent minister whom they had known were the most unscrupulous and daring highwaymen who had ever followed the roads on this continent. The Jameses early became the most dangerous outlaws of which history gives us any account. They were bold but cautious, skilled in the school of cunning, trained in the art of killing, shrewd in planning, and swift in the execution of their designs. They seldom attempted a robbery except in out-of-the-way places where the presence of robbers was not expected, nor did they ever attempt robberies a second time at the same place. Their plan was to strike unexpected blows. This week they would rob a train at Gad's Hill, next week at Muncie, Kansas. Again they would arrest a stage on the Malvern and Hot Springs Road, and then again they would flag a train at Big Springs, Wyoming Territory, a thousand miles from the scene of their last exploit. It was a gray, raw day in January 1874 when the regular stage running from Malvern on the St. Louis, Iron Mountain, and Southern Railway to Hot Springs pulled out of the little town. Two ambulances for the accommodation of the afflicted pilgrims bound for that mecca of relief accompanied the stage on the road. This cavalcade had reached the romantic vale of the Golfa, near the old Gaines mansion. This is a narrow dell shut in by abrupt hills, clad with a dense forest of pine and tangled underbrush and evergreen vines. At this particular place, the valley widens, and there is a beautiful farm and lovely grounds bordering the roadside on the east and north side of the stream. West and south, the deep tangled forest crowns the hills, which rise to a great height. Here is a favorite halting place for travelers along that way. The clear waters of the Golfa afford refreshing drafts to the wearied teams. We have said it was a gray, raw morning in January. The long drive from Malvern over the stony roads inclined the passengers as well as the horses to rest. That particular Thursday morning, the drivers had stopped as usual directly opposite the Gaines residence which is about 200 yards from the road toward the northeast. The spot is about five miles southeast from Hot Springs. A little beyond the stopping place, the road crosses the stream at a ford. 
Beyond the creek, the country is very rugged and covered with forest trees, and in those trees a band of robbers were crouched, waiting the approach of the stage and ambulances. The unsuspecting pilgrims were soon moving on, inwardly congratulating themselves on the near termination of their fatiguing journey. The stage and ambulances had proceeded well into the wood on the hot spring side of the Golfa, perhaps half a mile from the watering place, when a strong, emphatic voice called out from the borders of the brush, Stop, damn you, or I'll blow your head off. Thus commanded, of course, the driver of the stage brought his team to a standstill. The passengers naturally threw aside the flaps of the vehicles and thrust out their heads to ascertain what the strange proceedings meant. They saw at once. Cocked revolvers yawned before them, and stern, harsh voices exclaimed in chorus, Damn you, tumble out. Certainly under the circumstances, we will do so with alacrity, replied one of the passengers, a Mr. Charles Moore. Raise your hands, you damned blank. Of course, every passenger promptly obeyed the order. One passenger, a rheumatic invalid, alone, was left undisturbed. Then the leader cried out, Come, be quick, form a circle here. The order was obeyed. Then two of the robbers, one of whom was armed with a double-barrel shotgun and the other with a navy repeater, mounted guard over the prisoners and made many sinister remarks, doubtless intended to be jocose, but which kept the prisoners in a tremor of apprehension all the while. Then two of the brigands proceeded to examine the effects and pockets of the passengers. When the affable gentlemen of the road had completed their undertaking, they proceeded in the coolest manner imaginable to cast up their accounts. They had lost in cash nothing. In jewelry, naught. In conscience, well, it happened they didn't have any to lose. They had gained from sundry passengers as follows. Ex-Governor Burbank of Dakota, cash, $850. Ex-Governor Burbank of Dakota, diamond pin, $350. Ex-Governor Burbank of Dakota, gold watch, $250. Passenger from Syracuse, New York, $160. William Taylor, Esquire of Lowell, Massachusetts, $650. John Dietrich, Esquire, Little Rock, Arkansas, $200. Charles Moore, Esquire, $70. E.A. Peebles, Hot Springs, $20. Three Country Farmers, $45. Southern Express Company, $450. George R. Crump, Memphis, Tennessee, $45. Total, $3,090. It was a very good morning's work, and the bandits were so well pleased that they were inclined to indulge in a sort of grim facetiousness. One of them unharnessed the best stage horse, saddled him, and mounted him, and after trying his gait by riding up and down the road a few times, called out, boys, I reckon he'll do. Another of the band went to each passenger as he stood in the circle. John Dietrich was the first to pass through the ordeal of cross-examination. Where are you from? Little Rock, replied Dietrich. Aha! Yes, we have a boot and a shoe store there, remarked Dietrich. You'd better be there attending to it, was the observation of the chief of the bandits. Are there any southern men here? I am, replied Mr. Crump and three others. Any who served in the army? I did, said Crump. The leader then asked him what regiment he belonged to and what part of the country he had served in. The answers were satisfactory. 
and then the robber handed Crump his watch and money, remarking as he did so, Well, you look like an honest fellow. I guess you're all right. We don't want to rob Confederate soldiers. But the damned Yankees have driven us all into outlawry, and we will make them pay for it yet. Mr. Taylor of Lowell, Massachusetts, was examined. Where are you from? St. Louis. Yes, and damn your soul, you're a reporter for the St. Louis Democrat, the vilest sheet in the land. Go to Hot Springs and send the dirty concern a telegram about this affair, and give them my compliments, will you? Then Governor Burbank felt encouraged to ask a favor of them. Will you please return me my papers, asked the governor. They're valuable to me, and I'm sure you can make no use of them. We'll see, said the leader, sententiously, and took the packet and kneeled down to examine them. In a few moments he took up a paper with an official seal that excited his ire, and before he paused to examine it sufficiently to enable him to determine its character, he reached the conclusion that the bearer was a detective, a class which he held in the utmost hatred. Boys, I believe he's a detective. Shoot him at once, was the sententious command. In an instant, Governor Burbank was covered by three ready-cocked dragoon pistols. The ex-governor was on the border of time. Stop, cried the robber. I reckon it's all right. Here, take your papers. And the ex-governor felt that a mighty load had suddenly been lifted from him and that a dark cloud, which but a moment before had enshrouded the world in the deepest gloom of midnight, had drifted away, allowing the bright sun to shine out on the scenes of time. The passenger from Syracuse asked for the return of five dollars to enable him to telegraph home for assistance. The chief looked at him rather sternly for a few moments and said, So you have no friends nor money. You'd better go and die. Your death would be no loss to yourself or the country. You'll get nothing back at any rate. All this, while one of the robbers, said to have been James Younger, held a double-barrel shotgun cocked in his hand, which he pointed ever and anon at Mr. Taylor, the supposed Democrat reporter, making such cheerful remarks as these. Boys, I'll bet a hundred-dollar bill I can shoot his hat off his head and not touch a hair on it. And the others would respond with a banter of a very uncomfortable character, while the facetious bandit went on. Now wouldn't that button on his coat make a good mark? I'll bet a dollar I can clip it off and not cut the coat. With such grim jests did he amuse himself and torment his captive. Having thoroughly accomplished their work, the bandits made the drivers hitch up their teams and drive away. The whole transaction was completed in less than ten minutes. The robbers did not linger. In a few minutes they scattered through the brush. Some struck out, as they expressed it, for the nation, another for Texas, and one for Louisiana. Of course, denials of complicity on the part of the Jameses in this affair were at once entered by their friends, but it has since been ascertained that the party who did the deed consisted of Frank and Jesse James, Coleman and James Younger, and Clell Miller, one of the associates of the Daring Outlaws. Chapter 24. Gads Hill. A startling sensation, the robbers at the lonely wayside station, the passengers made prisoners and robbed. During the morning of January 31, at the hour of 9.30 o'clock, the St. Louis and Texas Express train, with a goodly number of passengers and the mails and valuable express freight, departed from the Plum Street Depot in St. Louis, bound for Texas, via the St. Louis, Iron Mountain, and Southern Railroad. 
Mr. C. A. Alford was the conductor in charge of the train when it departed, and when the event which we are about to describe occurred. Gads Hill, a name rich in historical associations, is a lonely wayside station on the road, situated in the northeast corner of Wayne County, Missouri, about seven miles from Piedmont, which is the nearest telegraph station. The 31st of January, 1874, was a dreary winter day. The cold gray clouds veiled the sky, and no ray of sunlight filtered through the wintry pall. The day wore away, wearily enough, with the passengers on Mr. Alford's train. They had not yet been together a sufficient length of time to assimilate, and each one was left to his or her own device for amusement or entertainment. Slowly the hours passed away. The landscape was cold, dreary, and forbidding. The winds came blowing from the north with a chill in their breath that made the passengers think longingly of sweet home. Iron Mountain and Pilot Knob and Shepherd's Mountain and the beautiful valley of Arcadia, in their winter dress, wore anything but a pleasing aspect. In fact, it was a comfortless sort of day, which made the passengers feel anything but merry. Nightfall was approaching. Already the thick atmosphere was becoming somber in hue, and it was evident the curtains of darkness were falling over the earth. By this time, it was about 5.30 o'clock in the afternoon. The train was approaching the little station, dignified by the name of Gadshill, in honor of the locality where Sir John Falstaff so valiantly met the Buckramite host, an event graphically delineated by the historian and poet of all climes and times. As the train drew near, the engineer saw the red flag displayed and whistled down brakes. Before proceeding to relate what happened to the train and the passengers on it, we shall state what had happened at Gadshill before the train came. About half past three o'clock that afternoon, a party of seven men, splendidly mounted and armed to the teeth, rode to the station, secured the agent, then took in a blacksmith, and afterwards all the citizens and two or three countrymen and one lad who were waiting for the arrival of the train. Among the persons so detained was the son of Dr. Rock, at that time representative in the legislature from Wayne County. The captives were taken to the little station house and confined there under the surveillance of one of the armed robbers. Then the bandits set about completing their arrangements for executing the work which they had come to perform. The signal flag was displayed on the track, and the lower end of the switch was opened, so that the train would be ditched if it attempted to pass. Then the bandits waited for their prey. In due time, the train came dashing down the road. The engineer saw the flag and gave the signal for stopping. Mr. Alford, the conductor, was ready to step upon the little platform as soon as the train came alongside. The robbers did not show themselves until the cars were at the station. No sooner had the train come to a full halt than Mr. Alford stepped off to the platform. He was instantly confronted by the muzzle of a pistol and greeted with the salutation, Give me your money and your watch, damn your soul, quick. Mr. Alford had no alternative. He gave up his pocketbook containing $50 in money, and an elegant gold watch. Get in there, they commanded, and Mr. Alford obeyed. While this was going on, one of the brigands had covered the engineer with a revolver and compelled him to leave his cab. Meanwhile, part of the band occupied the platforms at the ends of the passenger coaches, while two of them went through the train with a revolver in one hand and commanded the passengers to give up their money. 
Of course, the defenseless travelers yielded their change to the uttermost farthing into the hands of the robbers. Mr. John H. Morley, chief engineer of the St. Louis, Iron Mountain, and Southern Railroad, was among the passengers and was plundered along with the rest of them. The robbers made a clean sweep, taking money, watches, and jewelry from all. Among the passengers robbed were Silas Ferry, C.D. Henry, George G. Dent, Mr. Scott Sr., Mr. Scott Jr., Mr. Lincoln, Mr. Merriam, O.S. Newell, and A. McLean. After having effectually stripped the passengers of worldly wealth, the robbers proceeded to the express car, broke open the safe, and secured the contents. The mail bags were next cut open, and their contents rifled of everything of value. The whole amount of money secured by the robbers was somewhere between eight and ten thousand dollars. After completing their work, the bandits went to Mr. Alford and remarked that as he was conductor, he needed a watch, and they gave him back his timekeeper. When they had satisfied themselves that there was no more plunder to be gained, they released the conductor and engineer and told him to draw out at once. As the robbers, whose part of the business it was to relieve the passengers of their spare cash, passed through the cars, they asked each one of the gentlemen passengers his name. One of the victims, a Mr. Newell, asked the brigands, What do you want to know that for? Damn you, out with your name and ask questions afterwards, was the profane reply. Well, my name is Newell, and here's my money, and now I want to know why you ask me for my name, said Mr. Newell, with an attempt at pleasantry, fortified by a sort of grim smile. You seem to be a sort of jolly coon anyhow, said the robber, and I'll gratify you. That old scoundrel Pinkerton is on this train, or was to have been on it, and we want to get him, so that we can cut out his heart and roast it. During the time they were in the cars among the passengers, they mentioned the name of Pinkerton many times, and exhibited the most intense hatred of the distinguished detective. It was very fortunate for Mr. Allen Pinkerton that he was not a passenger on the train that lumbered up to the dreary station of Gadshill that winter day. This circumstance is confirmatory of the evidence that Jesse and Frank James were leaders in the Gadshill affair. They, for years, have cherished the most bitter animosity toward the detective, and the very mention of his name was sufficient to render them almost frantic with rage. The citizens were released, and the robbers mounted their horses and rode away in the gathering darkness over the forest-crowned hills to the west. Some of the features of this bold robbery were ludicrous in the extreme. The trepidation of the passengers made the job a quick one, because they were ready on demand to give up everything to the freebooters. One passenger complained at the hardship, and the following dialogue ensued. Give me your money, watch and jewelry, you blamed cur. Quick. Now please, I dry up, damn you, and shell out, and the robber thrust a pistol against his temple. Oh, yes, excuse me, please, don't shoot. Here's all I've got in the world. And the poor fellow, all trembling, handed up his wealth. I'm a good mind to shoot you anyhow, remarked the robber, for being so white-livered. At this, the alarmed traveler crouched down behind a seat. It was nightfall when the robbers rode away. Gadshill is in the midst of a wilderness country. There are but few settlements among the hills, and it was impossible to organize an effective posse at once for pursuit. At Piedmont, on the arrival of the train, the news was telegraphed to St. Louis and Little Rock. The citizens of that vicinity were aroused, and before midnight a well-armed posse of a dozen men were riding over the hills westward in pursuit. But the robbers, who were all mounted on blooded horses, rode swiftly away, 
Before the dawn of day, they were 60 miles from the scene of the crime. They called at the residence of a widow lady named Cook, one mile above Carpentersville on the Current River, to obtain a breakfast. There were but five of them in the party, and these were each armed with a pair of pistols and a repeating rifle. They continued on and passed Mr. Payne's on the Big Piney in Texas County, and went to the house of the Honorable Mr. Mason, then a member of the state's legislature, and who was at that time absent attending its session, and demanded food and lodging from Mrs. Mason. They remained there all night and proceeded westward in the morning. The same day that the five men took breakfast with Mrs. Cook, a dozen pursuers from Gadsill and Piedmont arrived at the same place, having tracked them 60 miles. End of section 8